If you are turning with me in your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 12 to start with. We're going to kind of jump around to a bunch of different a bunch of different places, and we're going to look at a few familiar scriptures, some scriptures we've looked at before, but we're going to see some we're going to see some different stuff. And, and what I want to talk about today and what God's really been laying on my heart, I think is really important. For us as Christians and for our walk and for us to be what we're supposed to be and for us to see the victory that we were just talking about, this is so important. So I want to talk to you about something that, well, for some of you is really scary. Your mind. I want to talk for a few minutes about your mind and your thoughts and your, your thought processes and the pattern of your mind you know we all have a pattern I have a pattern whether I like it or not and and the more as I was thinking about this this week I realized I have a pattern even just in regular stuff like every Monday when I go to get the pig food I only stop at at a certain gas station I have a pattern I go there one way and I come back a different way because I found out the patterns of traffic work better for me when I have a full loaded trailer to go off the main highway on my way home but on the way there I get there faster by staying on the highway all its patterns and without even realizing it like the other last week really last Monday is what got me thinking about these patterns I was almost out of gas and found myself like almost panicking because I couldn't make it to my normal gas station. I was gonna have to stop at a different one. And then I started thinking, why am I feeling anxious? I guess stopping, I'm gonna stop and get gas either way. Stop here. I'm like trying to talk myself into maybe you can make it. Maybe I'll make it. Why? That gas station's just as good as that one. It's not like it was cheaper, it's just a pattern. But how many of y'all know that's what we do? Like in our minds, we get these patterns to where we don't even realize that we just kind of go on autopilot and we think about other things, but we go through these routines throughout our day. We go through these thoughts, and, and for some of us, those patterns are positive. Those are good patterns and good things. You know, going through the motions isn't a bad thing if you're going through the right motions. It's only if you're going through the wrong motions when it becomes a bad thing. If you're going through the right motions right patterns, the right habits. It's building what you want to build. So we're going to talk about patterns and your mind and your mindset and what Scripture tells us to do. The mind is a battlefield. And according to Scripture and neuroscience, they both agree, which is kind of cool. We're going to look at a few things. Your mind is where you win or lose most of life's battles. Right here. That's where you will win or lose the fight. It all happens in between your ears. You know you can't live a positive life with a negative mind. That's impossible. If all you think about is negative thoughts and negative things and you're not going to live a positive life. You can't go in the direction. Like, they say that no matter what you say, 
no matter what you want or say you believe or whatever, that your life will always be moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So, I don't care if you say you want what God has for you. I don't care if you say this is the kind of person I want to be or look, but if you're constantly sitting around thinking something different, thinking that you're not enough or thinking that you're defined by your past or thinking, then that's the direction you will move in. Whether you want to or not, you're going to follow your strongest thoughts. In this moment, you're as young as you'll ever be. You're never going to be this young again. So don't miss a moment to get this right and get this straightened out. Some people in this room are pretty young, and some of y'all are, y'all better hurry up. You ain't got a lot of time left. I like to think of myself somewhere in between, hopefully. Right? But really, none of us know. So right now in this moment, we're all breathing, so we all got a chance to do what God's called us to do, and we got a chance to fix some of these patterns, but we're as young as we'll ever be. But guess what? You're also the oldest you've ever been right now in this moment, too. You're the youngest you will ever be, and you are the oldest you have ever been right now. Anxiety and excitement we've talked about this before so I won't spend much time on it but anxiety and excitement produce the same things in your brain but one is positive and one is negative one helps you perform and compete at a higher level the other destroys performance and takes away your competitive edge the difference is simply perspective anxiety can cripple you like it can stop you it can keep you from performing it can it can cripple you but excitement and anxiety produce the exact same chemicals in your brain it's just about your perspective it's what you've trained your brain to do with the situation Let's read Romans 12, and then we're going to talk about this. It's a familiar passage. I'm going to read it to you in the Message Bible. Romans 12, let's read verse 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do. This is Paul talking. God helping you. In other words, you can't, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. So here's what I want you to do, but don't worry. God's going to help you. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So like we talked about last week, give him what you have, your time, your talents, your treasures, first fruits. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Well, then what will happen? You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. See, God brings out the best. God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. 
God, your Father, wants to bring out maturity in you. He's our dad, and he wants us to grow up. And this is the scripture where King James says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how you will see a transformation in your life. That's how you're going to see a change is by a change in your mind. We all probably have something out here that we'd like to see transformed. We've all probably got other people in our life that we'd like to see transformed. But Paul is saying that the transformation is not going to come until there's a change up here. There's got to be a change in your mind. I found this interesting when talking about the brain and our patterns and in your mind. Cortisol, a.k.a. the stress hormone, it's what happens in the gazelle when the lion comes up and they, it causes them to run fear stress shoots through your body you have that too your brain produces that too okay so some people refer to it as the stress hormone cortisol it works with certain parts of your brain to control your mood motivation and fear it was meant to be an alarm system like that's why God placed it there it's an alarm system If the lion runs in and he's just about to bite my throat, my brain produces cortisol, it shoots through my body, and I punch it in the face. I run, probably, so as not to set a bad example, even though I could beat it, I know some of y'all can't, so I run. It was meant to be an alarm system, not your go-to way of thinking and reacting. See, like we train our brains what to do in the situations of stress and in situations of fear and in situations where the unknown, we don't know what, like, and we train ourselves. When you have negative thoughts, it releases into your blood. What happens when you gossip? You see, in order for you to gossip, you have to hold a negative memory or thought in your mind. Remember it. And you not only think about it, but you share it with other people. That's what gossip is. It's holding on to the negative thought or memory. Then you share it with other people. The second you hold negative thoughts in your mind, the biochemistry of your brain changes and you automatically release cortisol, the stress hormone. And they've done all these studies hooked up to the brain scans and every time you gossip, you're holding on to that negative thought, that negative memory, that pain, even something just that something negative about someone else. Right? It could even have nothing to do with you. But you choose to hold on to that. And then your brain releases the stress hormone into your blood. Which then weakens your immune system. Inhibits the actions of your white blood cells. And increases the chance of infection. And even promotes weight gain. What? 
me gossiping about somebody else. That, there's another reason we're instructed throughout Scripture not to gossip. It's physically bad for you. It can make you sick to sit around. You know people like that that just sit around and they talk about everybody. What he did and she did and they did and why he did and why'd they do that and why didn't they do that. What that is, that's holding on to all these negative things in your mind and then sharing them and it's just releasing. It's forming patterns and it's releasing the stress hormone. Psychologists say that we average about 60,000 thoughts per day. It's about the average that go through your mind. And I know some of y'all are a lot lower than that. And I guess if that's the average, some people are much higher. So I guess you're tired. It's a lot of thoughts. 60,000 thoughts per day fly through your mind. Subconscious thoughts and things you don't even think about and your mind's working. But we're not supposed to hold on to the negative ones. Most people believe that situations, you, pr you probably believe this, you might. Most people believe that situations cause stress, anxiety, depression, all kinds of other things from situations. Right? Something bad happening to you. you. You can't pay the bills. You, you were whatever. Something bad happened. So a situation caused anxiety or depression or situations caused your stress. Well, they now have all kinds of studies that prove that's not true. The reality or the truth is this. There is no situation in the universe that can give you anxiety. None. There's not a situation that can give you anxiety. It is your psychological reaction to the situation that can cause you to experience anxiety or depression or fear. It's your reaction to the situation. It's not the situation itself. This is why they've done these studies and hooked people up to brain scanners and taken them skydiving. And when some people skydive, their brain releases endorphins into their blood. Endorphins, that's the good feelings. The endorphins that you get from playing a sport or working out or all these different things. God designed your body to, to get these endorphins. So when some people jump out of an airplane, their mind floods their blood with endorphins. They get, it's a, it's a legal high. They get to feeling great about life and happy and they're up on Cloud nine, literally. Right? They, they get these endorphins into your blood. Do you know that they've proven that if you go on a 40-minute jog, you might not be able to go on a 40-minute jog. If you, if you jog for like 15 and then walk the rest of the... <laughs> till, till you can. But they've done studies 
on the brain and they've proven that if you go on a 40-minute jog, it produces the same chemicals in your brain as one strong antidepressant pill. Just a 40-minute jog. It does the exact same thing in your brain as a Prozac. It releases those endorphins into your blood. But some people... When they jump out of the airplane, skydiving, jumping out of the exact same plane, their brain doesn't produce endorphins. You know what their brain produces? Cortisol. Stress. When they hit the ground, they're not happy. They're not pumped. They're never coming back. That was horrible. What if they would have died? And their kids wouldn't have a mother or a father or like they're not happy about the experience the people whose brain produced the endorphins hit the ground and they're like "Woo! I'm gonna become an instructor how many hours do you have to have to fly your own plane hey you know the two different kinds of people I'm describing but notice the situation was the same the airplane was the same, the instructor was the same, the equipment was the same, the parachute was the same, the, everything was the same except what? In their brain, the patterns. One of them held on to the negative and they've trained their brain to do that over the years, to filter out all positivity. The other held on to the positive and didn't care that they might die. Same situation. Situations don't cause anxiety. Situations don't cause depression. Yeah, you can be depressed. You can have anxiety because of things that, like you go through things, but guess what? Some people go through things and they don't have anxiety that's what we're talking about but you need to realize that before you can ever change it or help it you just think that's how I'm wired then that's how you're going to stay wired you can never change something you won't admit needs changing I heard uh uh, Greg Groeschel said last week talking about the patterns we create in our brain and he, he gave an example that I thought was really good of if I just walk out my back door and walk straight across my backyard like to Malachi's shed every day and walk on that same path to the shed and back for 100 days in a row guess what there will be a path there the grass will die in that path and it'll be nice and smooth and even if my grass grows up high, as long as I'm still walking that path daily, it'll be a nice smooth path. And then guess what? It's easier for me to just walk out the door and walk straight to the shed on that path. You've probably do that if you've, you've done that before, or you've seen that done, or you see your dog travels the same path, so you got a little trail through the yard. I do. Well, then it's easier to walk that path because I can see and I'm familiar with it and I'm comfortable with it. In fact, I can just do it on autopilot. I don't even have to think about it. And if the kids left 17 bicycles in the yard and grass grew up higher than the bicycles, I'm not going to trip over them because I'm walking on my path. 
the problem is if it's a bad path or if it's leading me to somewhere I don't need to be going. Like if, if every time I get stressed out, I have a little path worked out in my mind where I go to the freezer and get a tub of ice cream. Right? That's not a good path. That's not going to be a healthy path for me. So what do I do? Just like you would in the yard. You realize that it's not a healthy path and it's something I want to change. And then even though it's hard, every time you feel like walking down that path, you replace it with a different path. Every time I'm stressed out and I realize it's something I want to change in my life, instead of walking to the freezer to get that tub of ice cream, I make a new path that says I'm going to walk down to my mailbox and back. And I'm going to pray while I'm walking. And at first it's going to be difficult. It's just going to take discipline and willpower. That's how we retrain our brain. That's how we form new pathways. And then after 100 days, guess what? The grass grew back in the old path to the freezer. And a new path was formed to the mailbox. And Dusty didn't have a heart attack. Because it's a pattern. I realized it was a pattern I wanted to change. And I figured out how to change it. So let's work some new paths. You know, if, if David was alive today, King David that wrote half the Psalms, if, if David was alive today, we probably wouldn't have half the Psalms. Like we wouldn't even get them because we would medicate him. He'd have never wrote them. <laughs> right? Level that right on out. David was very emotional. David was a man after God's own heart. David was, he had that battle in his mind a lot. And sometimes he lost the battle. And it's okay. I know you've lost the battle. I've lost the battle. We're going to lose battles in our mind. But we keep battling and we realize where the battle's taking place. Think about Paul. Remember Paul talking in Romans 7 where he said, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't do, I want to do. There's this war in my mind. You're not alone. So we want to be transformed. How? Isaiah 26, 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace. That's really the goal. Everybody wants peace. We want to be at peace. We want world peace. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's set on thee, focused on thee. What does that mean? My, my focus. My mind is set on God. What happens when you, never mind, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Whose mind is stayed on thee, focused on God, because he trusteth in thee. I ain't got um, There's a lot of things that are trying to steal my focus. But I trust you, so I'm going to keep focusing on you. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us to prepare our minds for action. Prepare your mind for action. Well, that's kind of weird. What do you do when you prepare your body for action? 
Like if you're going to be in a fight or you're going to play a sport or you're going you're to prepare yourself for action. You watch what you eat. You train leading up to it. You do the things you need to do. You have some discipline. You stretch right before it. Well, that's the idea that, that Peter's given us there. Is you prepare your mind for action. Don't just let thoughts fly in there and take over. And you focus on them. You prepare for the battle. You don't win a whole lot of battles you don't prepare for. You may or may not. I mean, you could get lucky. But most of the time, you're going to lose a battle that you're not prepared for. If you've not armed yourself for or made a plan for or Prepare, train, practice. You choose what you will focus on. That's a choice you get to make. I don't care how bad your life is, you get to choose what you focus on. It's a choice that only you get to pick. You get to choose. All right? I can take one of my kids and sit them in the corner and say, think about this. But guess what? They have to choose that themselves. That's one thing I can't make them do. You choose what you're going to focus on. You choose what you're going to think about. And your body can be in the right place. You can be sitting right here listening to me talk and thinking about, I mean, you could be 100 miles away in your mind. You're choosing what you're thinking about. You choose what you'll focus on. You can focus on good or bad. You can focus on positive things or negative things. You like in everything in this church I guarantee you you can find good things and I guarantee you you can find bad things in me as a pastor you can find good things and you can find bad things I promise you if you're having a hard time I can give you a list of both good and bad I've had a lot of help with the bad one so I know <laughs> Not like in your marriage you can choose to focus on the good or the bad. I promise you. You can find some good things to focus on. Or you can choose to focus on the negative things. In your job, in your relationships, and in everything that you do. Look at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren... Whatsoever things are true, the truth, that's going to be important, right? We're talking about what to focus on. We're going to focus on whatever things are true. So anything that's the truth is fair game. Anything that's true, focus on that. Not a lie, truth. John 8, 32 says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. You want a key to freedom? Anybody need a key to freedom? Know the truth. Well, what if I don't feel it? What if I don't feel the truth? God says that you are His masterpiece. His workmanship. What if you don't feel like a masterpiece? It doesn't matter if you feel it. You know the truth. You speak the truth. You think about the truth. 
you put it first because it's true whether you feel it or not and eventually your feelings will begin to follow you instead of you following your feelings and that's what he that's what John meant by you will know the truth and the truth will make you free you will follow the truth and your feelings they'll follow you they were put there for a reason and God wants you to feel it and have passion in your heart to be in it. But you're not supposed to chase the feelings. But if you don't feel it, it's okay. What if I've been told a lie by somebody else or by myself? You know what? It's easier for me to like get rid of a lie that somebody else told me than the ones I told myself. Because I really trust me. I believe me. I can sympathize with me because I've been where I've been. I've seen the things I've been through and I believe me. And you believe you. Which is a great thing. That's wonderful. I'm glad you believe yourself. The problem is when you've been telling yourself a lie. When you tell yourself that you're not worthy or you're not good enough or you're not or that you've messed up too bad, or that you're not loved, or when, when you tell yourself a lie that contradicts things that God has said about you, that's the problem. Because you're a very influential person in your own life. And hopefully you are in other people's lives too, but you influence yourself whether you know it or not. So what do we do if we've been told a lie? You have to replace it with truth. You can't just say, that's a lie. Well, you can, but you're never going to replace that lie by just saying it's a lie. You have to replace the lie with truth. You replace it. You speak what is true. How? Discipline and repetition changes the neuropathways in your brain. Discipline and repetition. You realize that you can change your brain. This isn't just out of the Bible. Like, this is neuroscience. And it's that simple. Discipline and repetition can change your brain. And Paul just told us that if you change your brain, you transform your life. So that's what it's going to take to transform. Discipline and repetition. Form new pathways, pathways that lead to truth, not lies, to life, not death. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, and whatsoever things are honest, and whatsoever things are just, and whatsoever things are pure, and whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, where it's almost all bad, well, if there's any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Focus on these things. Well, she did this and that. And okay, is there anything good or true? Or is there any virtue? Is there one thing? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I bet there's one thing. And Paul said, okay, then focus on that. Tell me what you like about her. 
Focus on the good. And what? Stop pointing fingers. A lot of times we do that in our own lives too. Is Because really, honestly, it's easier to point a finger and blame why you are the way you are on somebody else rather than take responsibility for yourself. You know what I'm talking about? A lot easier to say, yeah, well, them patterns are in my brain because when I was a kid, I got abused. Well, the reason I think negatively is because my grandma taught me that you you got to be a realist and you got to always see the that people are out to get you. Or whatever, like, it's easy to point your fingers. Listen to this verse. I, I think this is a really cool verse. I thought it was pretty, pretty funny. Ezekiel 18, verse 2. What mean ye that... You, that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Huh? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Wait, wait, this will bring a little clarity. Here's how the Message Bible words it. What do you people mean by going around the country repeating the saying, the parents ate green apples and the children got stomach aches? <laughs> like, that sounds pretty funny. But if you go read the rest of that and go read and look at what it was, here, here's what was going on. The children of Israel were blaming their problems. They were blaming the reason that they were in slavery and all this stuff on stuff that their dad did. My teeth are crooked because my dad ate sour grapes. I got a bellyache because my mama ate rotten food. And go read the rest of the chapter, but Ezekiel pretty much tells them, God said, tell y'all, that's bull. You're responsible for you. Stop blaming stuff on your past. Stop blaming stuff on your DNA and your generational curses and all your, like... At some point, if you want to change the patterns in your brain, you're going to have to take responsibility for it yourself. You can't say, I am this way because of what my dad did. Right? I'm, I can't, I'm this way because of the pain that I've been through. No, you can choose, you can find healing for the pain that you've been through. And I'm not taking away from anybody's pain. Anybody's hurt or abuse or the things that you've been through or... And, and yes, you, you may have certain tendencies because of the house you grew up in or, or because of your DNA or you may be bent towards alcohol and somebody else itting or you may be whatever. I understand all that. But as long as you're pointing fingers and saying, my teeth are messed up because daddy ate sour grapes, you're never going to see a transformation. You're never going to believe the truth. Blaming it on somebody else. Stop blaming your parents. Stop pointing fingers. Blaming the past. Blaming your pain, your mama, your daddy, your family, your build. I just all I wanted to do was be in the NBA and I was born... Like this. 
not NBA material. We'll leave it like that, okay? You can't stop blaming stuff on your build. Don't blame it on your race. Right? Why? Because that's not going to get you anywhere. If you never take responsibility or, or take the authority over your thoughts in your life, you won't see a transformation. You can just be, be what you are and let stuff happen. So what are you saying, Dusty? Stop crying and start sweating. At some point, let's go to work. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's change some patterns. It feels better to go sit down with a tub of ice cream than to walk to the mailbox. I'm picking on that one, but guess what? Every single person in this room, including myself, has patterns. So let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves. You will it. You make it happen. Use a little discipline. Change your thought patterns. And what? You change your life. Change the way you think. You change the way you live. Can I say it this way? It's time to start rewriting your story. You've been reading that old chapter over and over and over and over and over. And and I know it was a chapter in your book. and That's cool, but now you got that thing memorized. And we do too. Every time we see you, you read us the same chapter. It's time to rewrite your story. And start writing a new one. Today and the future. Hope's in the future. Hope's not back there. That already happened. You can't change it, good or bad. I don't even good, bad, I don't know, but you're not changing it. Hope's up there. Hope's in the future. So we need to start rewriting our story. Now there's lots of millennials that are having a quarter life crisis and I can't replace negative thoughts unless I know the truth. You got to retrain your brain. And you replace it with what? A better one. It's like when you're you're coming up with ideas with each other and don't say to somebody that's a horrible idea right come up with a better idea than what they had and tell them that it's a much better way to do it replace lies with the truth we're going to wrap this thing up look at Colossians 3 2 let's look at a couple things Paul had to say
set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Was that all of it? There we go. Colossians 3.2. I guess I just forgot to mark that. Set. Set. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So that word set, it's a Greek word. It, would translate, it was translated set. It's the only time in the whole entire Bible that this word was translated set. See where it says set your affection? That's the exact same word. They translated one of them set, one of them affection. It's the same word. It's a Greek word. Here's what it means. To think, regard, to hold an opinion, to set one's mind on, to focus on, to have a certain attitude. Wait. To choose to have a certain at wait, you choose your attitude? That's what Paul's saying. You set your mind on this, you focus on this, you can choose this attitude. It's a mind to think minded or like minded. So set your affection, set your mind, set your attitude on what? Things above. Above that's upward, heavenward, top, high to the brim and not on things of the earth that's of the world country religion I mean excuse me region land ground soil see it's not necessarily bad things it's just things that were meant to be beneath you it's things that you were meant to walk on not look up to it's things that were meant to follow you not the other way around Timothy Wilson lead researcher of the University of Virginia did an experiment and they put people in a blank room with nothing but their mind and their thoughts no music, no cell phone, no nothing in a plain, boring room with no pictures or anything and just you and your thoughts for 15 minutes. And people couldn't stand it. They freaked out. They hated it. A lot of people didn't even make it the whole 15 minutes. They were knocking on the door. So they tried it first with like college students and they were like, whoa, it's this generation of snowflakes. And they tried it with old people and it was the same. Then they tried it with all different people from different demographics and different races. And they tried it with rich people and poor people and just tried to do a nice big variety. And nobody liked sitting in there for 15 minutes. Nothing to do. Everybody got bored. And so they kept running these experiments and these tests. And I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, they got a shock, a pretty strong electric shock like a taser. It was about as strong as like a taser that like a woman would carry in her purse or something like that. So it was a pretty good little hit. And they brought these people in, volunteers of course, these weren't prisoners. 
And they brought them in and they said, hey, we have to show you what this shock feels like. And they hit them with the shock. And every single person that they hit with the shock hated it. In fact, they all agreed that they would pay money to never feel that again. They said, would you pay money if you never had to feel that again? Yes, they all agreed. Now what they did is they put, they fitted a sleeve around their arm and they explained to them that same shock is in this sleeve and here's the button. And at any time you push that button, you will feel that shock go through your arm and they'd be like, why would I do that? I said, I don't know. Now go in the room for your 15 minutes with you and your thoughts. And they waited and monitored to see if anybody would get so bored they would rather feel pain than sit there and if they would hit that button. You know, 25% of women hit the button at least one time before the 15 minutes was up. 70% of men hit the button at least once with one man hitting the button 190 times before 15 minutes was up. <laughs> which they had a lot of findings from that study. So if you want to go pull that up, I don't have time to read you all the findings, what they found, but one of them was the major difference between men and women, how men seek uh, physical sensations and we would choose pain over nothing more so than women. But 70% of men hit that button and most of them hit it a lot one of them 190 times lots of people would rather feel pain than nothing so if we don't get this whole brain thought pattern our thoughts like if we don't get this thing right and if we don't realize that joy and hope and peace and love are things that we can choose because they are joy you choose joy you choose peace. You choose love. Jesus commanded us to love. You don't command a feeling. You can't command a feeling. It's a choice. If we don't realize that these are things we choose. See, if we're looking for things around us or situations to bring us joy, bring us happiness, I gotta have music or a phone or a situation. You know, I'm thrown in here in this dark room and I don't have joy. It's because the things around me, there's no joy. Or, you know, it's because I don't have a good relationship right now. Or it's because I thought I should be married by now. Or it's because I thought what, like, whatever it is. We think the reason we don't have joy is because of the situation. Or we think the reason we have anxiety or stress is because of the situation that we're in. Then when there's nothing out here, We'll push the pain button. We'll go back to the past. We'll choose to live in the lie because we'd rather feel pain than nothing. Right? We'll, we'll go back to an abusive relationship. Because I'd rather be in something dysfunctional than nothing. You know we'll never find world peace until we find inner peace. 
It's got to start in here. 2 Corinthians 10.3 Yes, I marked this one. The world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't marketing or manipulation, but they're for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies. And tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. Fitting, watch this, every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. King James, where is that? He'll be familiar to it and to you in the King James. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. You know what imaginations are? It's things you've made up things that aren't true, it's lies, it's, it's an imagination. And Paul said, casting down imaginations and, and every high thing is everything that we've got up higher than it's supposed to be. Casting down every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God or against truth, against what God says about you. And bringing into captivity every thought. Every thought. Not some of them. Not the ones that we think are super toxic. He said bringing into captivity every single thought. In obedience to Christ. Well, that's impossible. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm standing here preaching. And I'm having all kinds of thoughts. Thought, 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 thought. Squirrel, lunch. Kid. Like, thought, thought, thought. Azalea. Kidding. Now Rebecca's having thought, thought, thought. Like we have thoughts. I just told you a few minutes ago, we have 60,000 thoughts a day. Pretty sure you didn't, you weren't able to just cut off all those thoughts while you just sat here and listened to my thoughts for a few minutes. No, you're having thoughts the whole time. And so am I. So how do we catch, like how do we take thoughts captive? I'm going to tell you how. You have to set a trap. Set a thought trap. You don't chase thoughts. You're going to look like a fool. 
Like, if I have a mouse problem at my house and I need to catch, take into captive, take captive every single mouse, I don't get a cup start chasing mice looking for mice why because I look like an idiot and I'm not going to be effective I'm probably not going to catch any unless I have a real bad mouse problem if I'm running around just catching them in a cup then (laughs) call an exterminator because we got a major issue going on they're that bad Why? that's not effective for me to just chase mice around, but I'm going to take into captive every mouse. And I've done that with this whole thought idea. Because we've read that scripture before. We take into captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So I'm going to chase down thoughts. Oh, where are you doing here, thought? You're a lie. I'm after you. And then what? I'm chasing thoughts. And I find myself down a freaking rabbit trail chasing after a thought that I was never meant to chase. You know what happens when something is your prisoner, your captive? You take away its freedom. Now you control what happens with it. If I take you as my prisoner, or if RJ is my captive, then I decide what RJ does. I decide if I let him go or if I smash him. Sorry, RJ. I didn't think that through before I gave that illustration. <laughs> Point being, if we can set a trap and take every thought captive, then we can make it be obedient to Christ. And everyone that has no business being there we just smash it like an ant. It's no big deal. But we set a trap. Don't go chasing after the thoughts. Question them. Check a thought. Second Corinthians. 10, 5, the same verse we just read in, in the Passion Translation. It says, we can, you can, not like, I hope you, maybe we might, we, let's try this. It, it says, we can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God and break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. We can do that. How we capture like prisoners of war every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the anointed one. We capture every thought and we say, hey, what'd you say? That was a lie. There's somebody more powerful here and you're going to have to bow to him. Because he said something that's higher than what you just said. I can't believe that. Last thought, no more scriptures. 
this is something that I had to learn. And it kind of goes along with this, and I'm still working on it. Own your oddness. You have to own it. And some of y'all are weird. Like, I, I know you. You're just weird. You're odd. Stop wasting thoughts convincing yourself that you are less than, that you're weird, that you're not normal, that you're not enough, or you're odd. These are thoughts that contradict what God says about you. So like in the natural, I'm left-handed. That makes me kind of odd. Most of y'all probably knew that. It makes me think different. I think with a different part of my brain than y'all. It used to be considered a curse. Back in Bible days, they considered it a curse if a child was left-handed. Even in the U.S., up until the 20th century, if you had a child that was born left-handed, you trained them to use their right hand because that was odd. They didn't fit in. They didn't have baseball gloves and golf clubs and skill saws to fit them. Right, they're little weirdos. Why are you trying to use your wrong hand? Even in the U.S., up until the 20th century, people would, would try to change that. But now, it's kind of an advantage. In fact, we left-handed people are far superior to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. But now it is considered an advantage in, in some sports and like in boxing, you heard of a southpaw, like all, there's these different things to where now we realize that left-handed people just think with a different part of their brain. But I found this interesting. 10% of the population is left-handed. That used to be considered a bad thing. But out of 10% of the population being left-handed, listen to this. Six of the last 13 U.S. presidents were lefties. Eight U.S. presidents were left-handed and two were ambidextrous. And then from what I just told you about before the 20th century, a bunch of them might have been lefties, but we don't know. Because mom and daddy made them not be. I think Abraham Lincoln was, I think. Uh, but the ones we know of, eight were and two were ambidextrous. But back in the Bible days, it was considered a curse. It was considered a really bad thing. Like you couldn't even come into the presence of the king if you were left-handed because you were like considered handicapped. Something was wrong with you. And so, there are only three people mentioned in the Bible by name that were left-handed. And I found this super interesting. They all three came from the tribe of Benjamin. All three of them. Which kind of makes sense, because if you're left-handed, then maybe your brother runs in your family. Or, so, all three of the ones we have mentioned in the Bible came from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I don't know if any of y'all know what the name Benjamin means, but it means son of my right hand. 
son of my right hand. The Jews considered the right hand to be the symbol of power and strength. To be left-handed was weakness. And the only three guys we have mentioned by name in the Bible came from son of my right hand. The three lefties. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, so not only are they cursed, but get this. They didn't even fit in with their own people. Like there were times that they didn't even fit with their tribe. Son of my right hand, I don't fit here. Chosen, masterpiece of God. I, and I stick out like a sore thumb in this group. You ever felt those feelings? I'm not qualified to be part of this. To be here, to... I have... I get around some other pastors and stuff and feel like, what am I doing here? I don't... I feel kind of out of place. I told you all that story about when I was been a couple few years ago now I was working at Trace Diaz and I was still dealing with a lot of that and uh, I happened to be working with this the other spiritual director was like a Bible college professor and very very smart individual and wanted to know where I went to seminary and all where I got my training and all this stuff and I didn't and don't and like and so long story short I just felt really intimidated and I was supposed to speak and give several talks and like help lead this weekend and I felt pretty unqualified and pretty intimidated and uh, I was sitting on my bunk praying about it before I gave my first talk and and like he had said some stuff that made him seem really smart and nothing bad about him I'm not going to mention his name because he is very smart and he loves God, and he had said some stuff that made me feel like I had no idea what made me feel like, what am I doing, right? Like I don't fit. Like this is supposed to be who I, my people, and I, <laughs> and so I remember sitting there and just saying to God, like, I could never be him. Like I can't do that. That's not me. And, and immediately, you know, sometimes immediately the Holy Spirit will just say right back at you. And I said, I can never be him. And Holy Spirit said, he can never be you. Like, do what you do. And I did, and I never thought about it again until the end of that, in the end of that weekend when, when we were leaving. And I just heard that, heard that voice again say, I only had to remind you one time. Because before it was constant. Before it was a pattern, before it was a path, not qualified, not good enough, not filling in till the right one gets there, whatever. But you can form new patterns. You can replace truth with lie. Don't do that. <laughs> replace the lie with truth. <laughs> Let's do it that way. One thing I had to learn, and, and I felt like I was supposed to tell you guys today, and I, I learned on, on that journey is, 
God said, what if you don't fit in because I want you to stand out? You're different to make a difference. Ehud was one of those lefties. He went in with with a dagger on the wrong side of his body and he went in to see the evil king, Eglon. And the secret service searched him but they didn't even search the side of his body, the right side of his body, because you would reach across to draw your dagger like that if you were lefty. But all the right-handed guys would reach across like this. So they only searched the left side of his body when there was no dagger. This is the dude from the tribe of Benjamin that didn't fit in. And he went in and go read, it's a cool story. The Bible tells us that he was a big old boy, King Eglon, that he was real fat and real evil and this dude comes before the king and they're like what are you doing here he's considered handicapped he doesn't fit in with his tribe and he pulls out that dagger and he stabbed old Eglon and the Bible says that he was so fat that his fat swallowed the dagger and it disappeared inside of him whoa my hand back (laughs) then he ran outside found another sword and killed like 10,000 men of Moab and God freed Israel through him through a guy that didn't fit was considered an outcast Nehemiah says that God turns a curse into blessing. Paul said, in my weakness, his strength is perfected. In the places where I feel inadequate, the truth is, he'll use it. If I don't get stuck in these patterns and let anxiety and depression and fear take over. Who do you hang out with? Who are your closest friends? Gossipers find gossipers usually. Depressed people find depressed people. And hope finds hope. Look at who you're hanging out with. You've got to protect your hope. If you don't have hope in your mind, then you've got some patterns that are snuffing it out. You must protect hope. You can't be a hope dealer if you ain't got no hope to deal. You gotta protect your hope. Who are your closest friends? Because they'll influence your thoughts. And can I say sometimes you outgrow people? And that's okay. If you're growing and somebody else hitting, Y'all can't still be best friends in 10 years. Because they're going to hold you back. We love everybody. We eat meals with and fellowship and love and, and always, just like God calls us higher, we call other people higher. But I can't be best friends with somebody that's not willing to grow. To grow. That's okay. God doesn't just see what you're going through. He knows the cure. 
right? He's a wonderful counselor. We're talking a lot about the brain and neuroscience and psychology and all that stuff today. And, and the Bible tells us that God's a wonderful counselor. He not only knows what you've been through, but he knows how to cure it. He knows how to help you walk in freedom. Remember when uh, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And Peter said, no, I'll never do that. I'm your ride or die. Not me. And then they captured Jesus. And we know Peter denied him three times that night. And the Bible specifically tells us that when he denied him, there was a fire burning, a fire of coals burning and and this little girl, this teenage girl, peer pressures Peter to denying him again by saying, I know you were with him. You cut off my cousin's ear. I mean, what are the chances? Right, that her cousin was the servant that was in the garden that got her ear cut off. And this little girl's like standing there by the fire like, that's the man, that's him. Peter's like, it wasn't me. And he cussed at a little girl. How about a moment of failure? You're Jesus' ride or die. You're cussing at a little girl by a campfire. Denying that you ever knew him. And so three times, Peter denies him. And then we can skip up a, a chapter after the cross when Jesus comes back. And, and Jesus had a fire burning on the shore. A fire of coals. Same fire. And Jesus calls Peter. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Yeah, I love you. He said, Feed my sheep. See, Jesus asked him that three times. And we've looked at that story before and how kind of how Jesus was replacing, letting Peter replace the lies, the denial, the failure with truth what Jesus is doing is the modern psychiatric technique of psychodrama where he's walking Peter through his topographical triggers to reframe his pain and retrain his brain so that every time he sees or smells fire like every time he hears the number three He's not reminded of his failure. It's not a negative thing. His mind doesn't shoot cortisol through his body every time he walks up on a campfire. Every time somebody counts to three, it doesn't trigger this old pain from the past failure. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, came back and walked him through his trauma. So that now when he walks up on a campfire, he just remembers the cross. He remembered Jesus and what was done for him. And, and every time he hears the number three, he just thinks of the three days and the resurrection. and the, Because he walked through that pain and, and it happened. And he failed and he messed up. Let's pray. Hey, God, we hear you. And we realize we got some patterns that we may need to look at, question. 
God, thank you for speaking to our hearts and minds. God, we believe that, that you're moving and we believe that you have truth and that the things you say about us are true. God, I thank you that you've created everybody under the sound of my voice with a purpose and a call and that they are loved beyond measure. And anything that opposes that truth today, we capture it and we squash it. God, we love you. Thanks for being a good God and a good dad that loves us. In Jesus' name. Amen.